Welcome to Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau. I'm Kelly Smith, Senior Director of Marketing Commodities with Missouri Farm Bureau. We welcome you to a recorded session from our recent commodity conference. Farm Bureau deals in many topics every day on a daily basis, but none seems to have come to the forefront in the past year than marketing consolidation issues. So we decided to highlight that topic at our recent conference with that. Dr. Lee Schulz from Iowa State University, Dr. Scott Brown from the University of Missouri, and Scott Bennett with American Farm Bureau do a great job in highlighting the economic factors and implications and also discussing uh, ag policy issues that are being talked about by farmers and ranchers and state and national policy makers as well. We hope you're able to glean helpful information as we move forward into our policy development process. All right, good morning, everyone. I'm Blake Hurst, President of Missouri Farm Bureau, and I want to welcome you uh, to our virtual commodity conference. We're very disappointed uh, that we were unable to have it in person, uh, but we think we've got a great lineup of, we know we have a great lineup of speakers, of sessions. Uh, as you all know, we're, you'll have to dial in on Zoom or conference call or however you're communicating with us for each session. Um, so we have eight separate sessions, and uh, even the ones that run back-to-back, you'll have to hang up and redial uh, so each uh, session stands on its own. Uh, we've got people participating on Zoom, on conference calls, on Facebook Live. Uh, we're also recording each uh, session, and uh, you'll be able to watch and listen to those uh, when, when time allows. And that address, uh, I, I hope all of you have received, I know all of you have received an email, but if you haven't, or if you've misplaced the email, here is the address, mofb dot org slash forward slash event forward slash commodity and so all eight sessions will be uh, taped and be available for your uh, viewing pleasure when you have time uh, some notes for our session if you're watching on zoom you can ask <coughs> any time by pressing on the question and add answer tab at the bottom of the screen and typing it in uh, we have spencer tuma is going to be looking at the questions and uh, after the speakers have finished in this first panel uh, we'll be uh, we'll be getting those questions to the speakers. If you're calling in by telephone and have a question, please press star nine on your phone. Again, please press star nine on your phone. Uh, this will tell us basically. We'll hold your hand up so that we know that you're interested uh, in asking a question, and uh, we will uh, take those questions as they come in. Uh, and at that time, we'll unmute your line. If you do get a chance to ask a question, please uh, you know, turn down your radio, turn down the Zoom call, and, uh, and, and so that it doesn't interfere with your question. Uh, I'll introduce the speakers one by one. We have three panelists with us this morning. We're excited about this panel. We've really got uh, some top-notch people to uh, talk about uh, work in dairy markets and uh, about uh, the opportunity. We have to hear them, uh, obviously a controversial issue last several months uh, and as things have, have settled a bit we're still seeing uh, huge margins between uh, between what you're paying in the store and what you're receiving for your uh, for your fat cattle your feeder calves and uh, in the next hour or so we're going to find out why our first speaker is Dr. Lee Schultz 
He's livestock economist and associate professor at Iowa State University. He's a, uh, works in the Department of Economics there and serves as the statewide extension specialist on livestock economics and markets. His integrated extension research and teaching program provides leadership in the study of and educational programming for critical problems facing livestock and meat industry, including marketing, risk management, agriculture and trade policies, animal health, biosecurity, and management and regulatory issues. Uh, we're really pleased to have uh, Dr. Schultz with us this morning. Uh, he spent a lot of time in the last few months uh, both learning about and presenting about our livestock market situation. He's well known uh, as, a, as a national expert on these topics, and I would like to welcome uh, Dr. Schultz from Ames, Iowa. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'll share my screen here quickly. And I hope everyone can see that. So I'm gonna start out with a, a cartoon slide here. Um, and this is probably the best slide I'll have all morning. Um, and so here uh, we have a, an older gentleman with, with his grandson and uh, the older gentleman is saying, we didn't hoard toilet paper back in my day. We would tear a, a page out of the phone book in a Sears catalog. Um, and the grandson saying, what's a phone book and what's a Sears catalog? And for me, this really kind of highlights what the situation was as we went through these tremendous disruptions the last couple of, of months here. Uh, the older gentleman, you know, I, I, I think that really speaks to the ingenuity uh, of the industries. Uh, when, when I heard folks in the media talk about how not resilient the, the meat supply chain was, how fragile it was, that, that was completely wrong. Uh, we've seen tremendous pivots by producers um, to really mitigate some of the dire uh, situation or outcomes that could have occurred. Um, and then also, you know, speaking to the grandson here, I think it is important to highlight that this was truly unprecedented. So we can't necessarily use historical data to, to really identify what was going to happen during this situation, as well as many of us didn't experience this. So uh, I know there was similarities when a lot of people wanted to compare 1998 in the hog industry to the current situation. You know, I, for one, have been in this job eight years. And so that's something that I didn't experience um, that, that many of you may have. So I think, we, you know, a lot of this, we, we're all going into it blind. Um, and so, you know, a lot of it was some unexpected, some probably paradoxical relationships. But hopefully that's what's what I'm going to highlight a little bit today and, and speak a little bit to the economics of that. So here's a graph of futures for live cattle and lean hogs. And I think it really highlights some of these major disruptions we've seen, the big circle being the COVID-19 situation and, and earlier in the fed cattle markets, that circle being the, the Holcomb fire uh, this last fall. And, and when you look at futures prices, really 2020 is gonna, gonna stand out, right? And so those are uh, trading right now from a 105 average, if I take what's already experienced and then what we expect for the rest of the year, for cattle, for hogs, it's in that $55 per hunter weight. The optimism out there, at least in the futures market is possible return to close to 2019 levels. Um, and I think a lot of that is predicated on expectations and strong demand, both domestically and the export market, as well as really normalcy when we talk about the supply situation. 
Now, early on in that pandemic, uh, and I'll give credit to my co-author here, Glenn Tonzer, um, we, he really felt and we put together uh, a need for understanding what, what potentially could happen with increases in capacity utilization or decreases um, in total capacity. And when you look at historical relationships, this is graph is for beef. We also do this for pork in this paper. We show that a 1% increase in utilization or a 1% decrease in capacity decreases cattle prices by 1.3%. So what does that mean at much bigger levels? Well, if you go all the way up to 40% decrease in capacity, that decreases prices by about 50%. So that kind of gives a benchmark here, and then I'll talk about what the data went through here in 2020. So as we look at, at slaughter and how I measure capacity is pretty easily here, just measure it compared to 2019 levels, uh, assuming those were normal levels for processing capacity. And what we see here is really the week ending April 11th was the first reduction, major reduction in, in processing capacity and got all the way down for, for steers and heifers to 40% below year earlier levels. Barrels and gilts, it was about 36% below earlier levels. Now importantly, th this, this is aggregate US data, but that data point there I have for region seven, uh, which includes Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska, that weekend in May 2nd was the worst nationally, and it also was the worst when we looked at that region at 48% below year ago levels. Now, if we look at the period since early May to, to currently, barrel and gilt slaughter is down 1.24 million head, or that's 3%. Cattle slaughter is down 1.19 million and 13%. You'll see that cattle slaughter really for the first time since March got back up to year previous levels uh, for this last week here, week ending August 1. So as we look at the reduction in processing capacity or slaughter, what did that mean for prices? And I purposely make this graph really uh, messy. And, and the reason why is I'm using every cattle price here. And I could do a similar thing for hogs as well, uh, but for brevity here, I'm just gonna do cattle. We see the negotiated, the formula forward contract net uh, and, and the ne negotiated grid and then a total weighted average. These are Iowa prices. Um, I have Iowa data readily available as I do many presentations here in Iowa. Uh, it would show a similar story nationally. When we look at that worst week in, in processing capacity, you'll see negotiated prices were 24% lower. So a 40% decline we've seen that week um, only led to a 24%. And I, I don't mean to, to under, or underplay that 24%. But really the historical data suggested prices could have declined 50%. Now, when we look at the total weighted average, the decline was 17% because as you'll see, forward contract prices really didn't start to decline until we got into mid-May and then really all prices you know, declined since then. Currently, really all those prices are pretty close in the range of about that buck uh, per pound for, for fed steers. Now, what does this all mean for profitability for feedlots? Well, 2020 um, is gonna continue a, a string here the last several years of below break-even profits. This is a model here we estimated Iowa State to show profitability. It's a cash market model. 
So I'm using negotiated prices and then I'm using prices uh, I'm buying hand to mouth for corn, for feeder cattle, uh, distillers grains and, and all those inputs and that gives me my profitability here. You'll see that there's some profitability potential here uh, when I use those futures prices to project out into 2020 and 2021. And, and at earliest in September here, 2020, the reason why is that September closeout matches up with an April placement of feeder cattle when we've seen very suppressed feeder cattle prices. Um, but also we see potential for some, some above barrack even returns to end the year. And then as well as we get into, into seasonally higher prices into the first and potentially second quarter of, of 20, 2021. Now this next slide here um, shows what you could have hedged for 2020 closeouts. And so that's to your right of that, that blue straight line there. Um, and so when I update this model monthly, I always take futures prices out, which effectively gives you that net hedge price and then a, a return on those, those closeouts. It, when I was doing this back in late December and early January, those returns for all of 2020, which were driven by a lot of the first half of those returns, would have averaged about $40 per head profit. And you'll see compared to historically going back to 2007, that would have been a pretty good year uh, compared to some of the large losses we've seen uh, in, in some of that historical data. Now, as prices have declined, you'll see that, that margins for, for 2020 got as low as 142 on an annual basis and now have improved to about $50 per head loss. Now, I, I don't show this as a, a teachable moment. I don't like that phrase. It, it assumes that something was, was done wrong. And I think markets early on in 2020 were optimistic. There was a lot of positive uh, fodder on the trade front and we could have seen much higher values. No one's seen the, the COVID pandemic coming, right? But I think it does show, and for me, it highlights the importance of, of education, of how you know risk management Price risk management is not all about getting the highest price. It's protecting against those 142 losses or the $225 per head losses that we've seen in 2015. Now, what's probably got the most attention during this situation, or at least the, the, a lot of the questions that I feel, is looking at the difference between fed cattle prices and box beef prices. And the next several slides, I'm gonna highlight some of these relationships. I, I'm not attempting to um, speak one to one side or the other here. Um, I, I think what the importance, and I've tried to provide, is let's provide the, the best data, the best information to show this story. Um, because I think these margins can be manipulated, I think sometimes by accident, maybe sometimes by per, you know, on purpose, when we see them quoted in, in, some, of the, in some of the various sources that, that we uh, read and look at. So here's what I'm showing is the negotiated choice box beef price and the five area negotiated steer price. This is the largest you can make this margin. So it doesn't assume all the other ways I, I sell cattle or all the other ways that uh, packers sell, sell beef to, to retail markets be it formula forward contract and all those other various forms. So with these spreads here, you could look at that worst week or the largest spread in mid-May 
at $347 per hundredweight. If I multiply that by 8.5 carcass weight, that gets me about a $3,000 margin. And I think a lot of times that's referenced as the packer's margin. And hopefully I convince you through the next several slides that these margins were historically large, but they weren't that large when you look at it from uh, truly looking at the best representative data and then truly looking at net margins for packers. Now importantly, what's driving that box beef price is strong demand. And I think it's even stronger because of the stocking up behavior. Uh, the meat dem demand monitor out of Kansas State University, Glenn Tonzer is uh, responsible for, for this, uh, this publication and this research showed that consumers were stocking up as we, we seen in the grocery stores. Um, and the data really bears that out in March and April. And I think that continued in, into May. Now I'm not gonna go through this graph uh, because I don't have a lot of time to, to do this, but the reason why we've seen lower cattle prices and higher meat prices is, is really the economics of it. So to summarize, when you see a reduction in 40% capacity or 20% or even 5% when we've seen with that Holcomb fire, you get less demand from packers for cattle because there's less shackle space available. It's not that they don't want to buy those cattle if they're making money on the beef that they're selling. There's just no physical capacity for those cattle. Similar situation could be said for pork, for poultry, for whatever species we, we are talking about. So that gets a lower price for the livestock. Now, with, the, with a strong demand for beef, you have many retailers and food service that's still open. Uh, they're all vying for that reduced supply because we're processing less animals. So with that reduced supply, you get bidding up behavior that's reflected in retail prices, but also even more reflected in wholesale prices, and you get higher box beef prices, and you get a widening of that, that margin. Now these packer margin estimates are very sensitive to the data used. So I've already spoke to a little bit the box beef price. Do we use the choice box beef or do we use a comprehensive to represent all the beef sold? The value of the byproducts is certainly important. Sometimes that makes a packer profitable or not. Now in the situation of COVID, there was some packing plants that were reducing some of the their fabrication or, or uh, their, their saving of the, the, the byproducts. And so that was a value loss to those packers. And then the value of the animals. So do we use the negotiated price or do we use a representative price of all the ways that, that cattle are sold? So that gives us our, our packer gross margin. That's what's typically reported a lot of times in the media. But then we also have operating costs that those packers are, are, are incurring, which could be wages, transportation, utilities. Those could be higher during disruptions. And then you have fixed costs as well, those facilities and equipment. So that gives you a packer net margin. So I think this is analogous. Um, I like to think about it this way. So I showed you earlier the estimated returns to finishing yearling steers. And it showed that really since 2017, on an annual basis, we haven't really made much money looking at that Iowa State model. But if I would look at gross returns, that would suggest that it's a windfall for finishing cattle. And that those gross returns just being the fed cattle value minus the feeder cattle value. 
And so I think here's the major difference when we look at these, these packer margins and the importance of why do we need to look at the net margin. And if we show that net margins are still historically large, that's still a very important story. And I think that's even a more representative um, and impactful story uh, when we talk about it. So what we did, uh, this was a project with uh, Jason Lusk out of Purdue, Glenn Tonzer out of Kansas State, and myself. We looked at the sensitivity of the, these marketing margins. Uh, so one, just looking at the Packer gross margin, then two, looking at the Packer approximated net margin, where we count for capacity utilization and, and the variable and fixed cost. And then we include some COVID costs. It's just an assumption here of a $20 increase in fixed costs and a $20 uh, per head increase in variable costs. And then finally, that, that uh, Packer net margin, but let's look at all the different ways that cattle are bought by Packers. So the summary here, it doesn't change the, the story, but it changes the, the estimates or the height of those, those Packer margins. So a difference of about eight, seven to eight hundred dollars per head when we look at that mid-May week. When we compare the gross margin to a net margin and a net margin that we control for COVID costs. Now, furthermore, you can look at all the different ways that that cattle are bought by packers, and remember those forward contract prices were very strong in, in April. Um, and that shows the difference here when, when you account for that in the green line to, to show those packer margins weren't as high. Again, the story doesn't change that we've seen historically high margins, but I think it's important to talk uh, appropriately about what the data can and can't tell us. Now, when we look at the situation presented by COVID and, and the number of packing plants affected, you'll see that here highlighted by a map put together by the, the KC Fed, which showed several plants had positive COVID cases but were never closed, but there were several plants that were closed less than a week or even more than a week. And this all attributed to that reduction in slaughter capacity. So it wasn't just that plants closed, it was that plants severely decreased operations for a period of time. And really the situation wasn't necessarily driven by anything beyond the, the labor that, that, that they were facing. Um, so we had a real labor constraint. If it wasn't the labor constraint, I think ingenuity would have prevailed. Uh, the, the industry had incentive obviously to increase operational rates, but when you had the labor supply impacted both directly and indirectly, you've seen those operational levels that we did. And I think why you've seen it in areas like Iowa was because of the importance of, of slaughters and meat packers. So for every 1,000 jobs in Iowa, over three are in the slaughters and meat packers industry. And when you look at Sioux City, Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, that, that tri-state area there, Every, for every 1,000 jobs, 15 are in the, the meat packers and slaughter. So whenever you have a shock to the labor in a particular area like we did with COVID, that's why you've seen the, the, the large impact on packing plants. And there wasn't an available labor to really draw from. So if you go back to March time period or, or even a little bit before that, February, I like to use this statistic out of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's the number of unemployed persons 
per job opening. There was less than one in February. So if I'm looking to hire someone, I can expect to get less than one. This is what the, the, all, all employers were facing, and you could argue that meat packers, this was even lower number there. So again, when that labor supply was impacted, there wasn't a, a, a pool of, of laborers to draw from. Now when we look at the, the structure of, of packing plants in the United States, and, and again, sim, this is a similar story for pork. I show you cattle here. USDA breaks this down annually to show by size group, and you'll see that there's 480 cattle, federally inspected cattle plants, and that represents almost 72% of the plants. We have 670 total. Now, those very small plants slaughter less than 1% of the cattle an annually. If you take the flip side of that, there's 12 plants nationally that slaughter over a million head per year. Now they represent over 50% of the cattle slaughter. Now this hasn't really changed since 1998. That large group, the, the over, a thousand, over a million head slaughtered annually, that market share has only increased 0.6% from, from that time period. So the structure has remained relatively intact over that, that period. It speaks a lot to the economies of, of size, but also I think that the, the importance of the distribution of those size groups. I've said it many times, every size packer has a role in this industry. It was shown before this, and it was certainly shown during COVID-19. A bit about the, a lot's talked about the economies of scale, but I think we need to really highlight the, the abilities of scale in this, in what we experienced over the last couple of months. So normal processing capacity for cattle, it's about 100, 125,000 head per day. It's maybe about 127,000, but I, I make my math easy here. So if, if you lose 40% capacity, that means 50,000 cattle are backed up on the farm that day. Now, if you do that for five days, that's 250,000 head are backed up in a week. And so if you had a small-ish plant that could take 100 head of cattle per day, so there's 28 of those in the US right now, they would need to run 50 extra days just to make up for one plant that can slaughter 5,000 head per day. Or you would need 50 brand new smallish plants to be able to do that 5,000 head plant that, that does it in one particular day. Now, can we do that with the available infrastructure we have? So USDA reports monthly non-federally inspected slaughter and we see here in June that those slaughter numbers did ramp up, but they only account for hogs less than 1% of commercial slaughter and cattle about 2% of commercial slaughter. So many of the constraints that large facilities, federally inspected facilities face as far as labor, as far as equipment, um, as far as uh, just, just facility size, you can think about cold storage, are even more drastic in some of these smaller uh, plants that, that are out there. Now certainly every bit help during the, this pandemic and for individual operations, these, these non-federally inspected slaughters were really key to keeping many of the, those, those operations current or have some semblance of currency. 
Now on farm slaughter, uh, this data is available through 2019. Again, this is really a drop in the bucket, less than 1% for both hogs and, and cattle. So here's my last slide, um, and I highlight an article here with, with Glenn Towns or myself that, that appeared um, looking at the economic impacts of COVID on, on the food and agricultural markets. We focused in on, on the meat processing sector. Um, and, and you know, I'll highlight here again, truly historic disruptions here. It wasn't just an isolated case. It wasn't just the United States. This was worldwide. Uh, where many major protein markets worldwide were impacted by this, both from a supply and a demand standpoint. Uh, we certainly, I think the vulnerability, what was really related to labor um, and not necessarily the supply chain. Um, I heard a lot of talk about the just-in-time just supply chain for hogs. Um, I think that got way overplayed when you've seen the ability um, and desire and, and, and just effectiveness of producers adjusting diets, uh, sorting, topping off pens, increasing stocking densities, finding additional uh, facility space. That was really all remarkable. And I think that really points to the resiliency of, of the supply chains. There's been a lot of calls for change. You know, I think some of them are, are speculative at this point. We're very much early on um, in this recovery process but talk about automation at packing plants, added cold storage, number size and design of facilities. Um, I would caution really the calculus involved in making these changes is very complicated. Uh, you know, the saying is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, I think the industry has developed over a long period of time to the way it is. Um, and I think we need to appreciate some of those developments. Now, can, it, can we make some adjustments? Can it become more flexible? Certainly. Uh, but I think we need to really strike a careful balance between efficiency in normal times, which we've really seen historically with a few disruptions, um, and resiliency during pandemics and other disruptions that we potentially could see. All right, thank you much, uh, Dr. Schultz. And we'll turn our next uh, presenter is uh, Dr. Scott Brown. Uh, no uh, stranger to those of us in Missouri. Uh, we appreciate him showing off our columns at uh, back of Jesse Hall there. He's the Director of Strategic Partnerships for Kafner. He's uh, Associate Extension Professor in the Division of Applied Social Sciences and is the Director of Strategic Partnerships for the College of Agriculture. Uh, food and Natural Resources. He's worked with U.S. Congress over the past de three decades, testified dozens of times in determining the quantitative effects of changes in dairy and livestock policies, and he's testified regarding, of course, dairy and livestock policy issues many times. He works with the Missouri Legislature on those issues as well, and uh, is the advisor for our uh, college uh, collegiate farm bureau chapter and a very good friend of all of us here at Missouri Farm Bureau. Scott, welcome this morning. Blake, thank you very much. Uh, it's good to be here and, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, cattle pricing issues. Uh, you know, I start this morning by just reminding you, this is not new. Um, I was reminding myself of my first time on the University of Missouri campus and I got to listen to a 
Harold Breimeyer seminar series. For those that have some history uh, with the University of Missouri, uh, you'll remember uh, Harold Breimeyer back in 1986. Uh, they talked about the future of the Missouri livestock industry. Uh, Jim Rhodes was one of the speakers, and, and I looked at a, a summary where he says, the structure of packing has been changing fairly rapidly as a result of the entry of new firms that exploited new technology, greater economies of scale, and the advance, advantages of lower labor costs. As a result of larger and fewer plants and firms, producers face fewer alternatives in selling their livestock. He goes on to say, I regard packer competition is generally quite workable, but the recent trends towards greater concentration should worry us a bit. I, I thought that was uh, an, an interesting observation for 1986. Uh, I, I'm curious what uh, Dr. Rhodes would say today uh, about the, the structure that we have. Um, and, and so it's certainly not a new issue. Uh, I keep saying I think it's one that will uh, get to, to talk about for a long time. I wanted to make sure of a few things just right out of the gate this morning. So I always like to talk about more negotiated trade probably provides better price discovery. Um, I remind us that that's not always higher prices. Uh, more negotiated trade at times could drive prices lower, uh, but price discovery is certainly, I think, the issue we need to to think about as we see concentration uh, that's really continued over a, a decades. Um, as you have fewer buyers and sellers, you certainly increase the chance for some non-competitive market behavior. And I think there's a reason why uh, we see a lot of interest today in whether or not uh, we need to make changes. Um, I, I agreed a lot with with where Lee was with us this morning as well, just to remind us that there are large economies of scale, uh, and frankly, they're in all segments of the cattle industry, not just the, the packer side. And, and those economies of scale reduce costs along the way. And so there's always this trade-off of reducing cost as we get bigger to take advantage of economies of size that has to be weighed against the concentration that comes on the other side. So um, I, I, there's no simple answers here, I think uh, is, is one of the things that I like to remind us. And just as we think about how prices at different market levels for cattle moved, um, COVID-19 was an unbelievable you know, shock to the system. And, and I think as Lee said as well, it's just amazing how well these markets worked. Um, I think we can still, however, go back and talk about who bears the risk uh, in, in these kind of events, and is that risk shared correctly? Um, and, and I don't think there's a simple answer to that question either, but one we should pay attention to. So just a little bit of, of background, and, and maybe I'm uh, going to have gone down the wrong road for some of you today, but, but I just want to provide some data that I think makes me... Uh, uh, at least ask more questions. Uh, if you think about uh, five and six weight uh, steer calf prices, uh, we've actually recovered nicely through uh, much of July uh, after what was a, a pretty tough uh, March, April period uh, for prices. Uh, you know, we really started the year at, a, at about a buck 70. 
uh, on those calf prices. And as Lee pointed out, there was a lot of optimism about what was going to happen on the export side of the equation uh, that I think you know, drove us to some optimistic uh, uh, possibilities for, for 2020. Uh, but, but we've gotten back to a buck 60 or so when we look at those prices. So th things have been helpful. I guess for me, the, the good news is we did market that many calves um, in, in the period of the worst of the price declines. Now, I will say to this price graph, I'm not sure what happens between here and the end of, of 2020. I certainly worry about uh, some of the demand side, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But when you look at cattle on feed numbers that we got back, yes, in April and May, you know, we lost five, 600,000 head of uh, on feed inventory as everything slowed down with the effects of, of COVID-19. As you look at what happened in June and July, uh, we certainly recovered quite nicely back to uh, uh, levels of on feed inventory that we would have had in 2019. Um, and, and so it starts to show this idea that we certainly pushed cattle uh, back in terms of trying to slow down uh, what was going on. Feedlot placements as well. We didn't place a lot of, of cattle in March and April, which, by the way, I'll remind us when we look at uh, 2021 data, we'll have to remember just how curtailed uh, 2020 was. But as we look at May and June numbers that we got, we were right back at, at uh, 2019 uh, levels. So, uh, again, resiliency throughout this, the system, uh, I, I will say, COVID-19 remains a key issue. I sure hope we get a vaccine sometime soon, but I think even then it will take months to, to talk about any kind of normal events. A lot of uncertainties about those new cases moving forward. You know, I remind us now that for me, the demand side's important for two reasons. Number one, you know, we can talk about short-term stimulus and, and, Dollars that are available. We're certainly seeing Congress uh, debate uh, an, another round of, of stimulus right now. Uh, but if you take that stimulus away, what's that mean for consumer spending um, and, and just the sheer reduction in the economy that uh, I think could be a drag on the demand side uh, for us? Um, I have a, a, a series of quick graphs here just to remind us. And, uh, for those that can see the graphs, uh, you'll, you'll see the gold line. I tried to kind of line up the end of March in all of these just to remind us uh, how severe a, a, a time it was. So this first graph, uh, supermarket foot traffic, uh, the, the blue line being the 2020 data, you see, uh, according to this data, that we were really in mid-March talking about uh, about a 10 to 15% percentage point decline relative to where we were in 2019. For me, that was kind of the early part of, of COVID-19, but then all of a sudden when we shut down, you see the spike in this graph where we went from 85, uh, a, a 0.85 to a, a 1.2 increase, and just the slug of demand that happened at the grocery store side as folks wanted to stock up. Um, I just remind you that after that, you know, you look at the foot traffic data that's available, it has slowed down some, but uh, supermarket traffic in general has, has been fairly strong. Uh, you compare that to uh, what was uh, foot traffic at sit-down restaurants, and by the end of March, uh, you know, we started uh, 
mid-March at, at what was about a, a one in terms of the index of relative foot traffic that fell to a 0.4. Don't see that kind of move uh, in, in normal, normal circumstances. So a, a basically shut down situation uh, certainly wreaked havoc uh, with uh, what was happening in meat markets. We've got some nice recovery. I do worry a little bit with what's been happening uh, of late that as cases have gone up, we've slowed down. Um, as Lee pointed to, when you look at uh, slaughter that was happening uh, roughly around the same time, this is where we were getting a lot of plant shutdowns. So what was uh, 105 to 115,000 average daily rate of cattle slaughter fell to, to 75,000. Uh, that kind of uh, uh, shutdown certainly hurt us on the cattle price side. So all of those factors going on at the same time, um, I kind of start to close by on that point by just reminding us of, you know, when we started 2020, first quarter uh, beef production was almost 8% above uh, year ago levels. And for the second quarter of 2020, it fell to about uh, 11% below year ago levels. We don't see those kinds of uh, changes very often uh, in, in terms of, of the meat sector more generally. Um, so box beef prices, uh, Lee's already talked about this, They've got uh, very high. Uh, again, I go combinations of strong demand pull as supermarkets uh, were, were seeing consumer stock up coupled with uh, the worst of, of the shutdowns or slowdowns in cattle processing plants. Um, it's, it's not surprising that we see that kind of spike uh, in, in hindsight, but uh, again, we'll have a lot of discussion about uh, the, the relative price levels that we see at, at each point along the way. I, I want to close this section by just reminding us this is more than uh, just a cattle issue in terms of how COVID-19's affected us and, and a little bit of concern on my point uh, you look at the graph off the left-hand side, it's the percentage, annual percentage change in prices received by farmers, so all commodities. Uh, if, you, if you notice, for those that can uh, see the graph here, you know, we're talking about being down 5 to 10% uh, as, as we started uh, the, the worst of the COVID, yet off the right-hand side, the CPI for food, so overall uh, consumer price index for food, uh, up about 4%. This idea that we've, in, in some ways, come unhooked from farm to retail. The, the graph also shows us that we tend to see a very good correlation uh, between consumer prices and farm prices, but that just really got uh, uh, moved apart as we talked about the worst of COVID. I worry about income. So here's a graph of uh, projections of real GDP. It looks like uh, most now are suggesting it will take us until 2022 to get back to the 2019 real level of GDP. That drag is something that, that we'll have to, to face for a while. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about, uh, you know, not all cattle and calves are the same. Different health, different genetics, uh, uniformity. Um, a, a little bit more about demand for feeder cattle is, you know, we're a strong feeder cattle state here in Missouri. Um, and, and just a, a little bit of maybe a different uh, points for us to think about. So Joplin feeder cattle price ranges, all right? So uh, I, I was a little bit uh, 
I, I guess, uh, not doing all my homework, but from the first week of November, that's what you have plotted on this graph. It's the high to low uh, values paid for four and five weight calves and five and six weight uh, calves at, at Joplin. So why am I showing you this graph? I, I want to remind you that generally those ranges have widened over time. Now, for those that can see the graph, you look at a, a year like 2014 and we were short on calves. Uh, I, I think really good calves brought up a pretty strong premium and you see that in the graph. But generally we've seen a, a widening of the range over time. And I would argue that has a lot to do with calves that are better quality. And I, I'm not saying that just from a meat quality perspective, but healthier, grow more efficiently. Maybe it's better genetics. You know, those cattle or calves are worth more. And so we're seeing a, a bigger range from, from top to bottom. Now I know everyone on this call has the best quality calves possible. So if, if we probably did this uh, for, for the folks on this call, it wouldn't show this uh, big spread, but there are some folks that have below average calves. How do we make sure we're getting that you know, message back uh, to, to our producers of what's, what's demanded in terms of, of cattle? Um, I, I go one further, and I, I think as Lee said, I sometimes say as economists, we always have graphs that are too complicated so no one can understand them. So I added one in for my talk this morning. Uh, it, it's really meant to talk about demand for feeder cattle. We oftentimes talk about demand for beef and whether it's strong or whether it's weak, uh, but we can sometimes look at, at uh, demand for uh, feeder cattle in, in a similar way. So for those that can see the graph along the horizontal axis, it's kind of the added value provided to feeder cattle prices relative to the gross value of fed cattle less their feed costs. Uh, on the vertical axis, it looks at the percentage change in, in placements. Um, we tried to lag this to try to give us a little bit of sense of what's going on. So in a year like 2013, where we have a pretty strong uh, premium for feeder cattle, you know, that had a lot to do with uh, just how tight supplies were. For me, when I look at the points on this graph of 2015, 2018, uh, even 2016, very strong demand. Uh, for calves. I, I go 2015, you had feed yards who were certainly bidding pretty strongly, uh, trying to get some uh, feed yards closer to capacity that, that drove demand fairly strong. So we, we come out of a period where we had a pretty strong demand for feeder cattle. And I, I think some of that's been waning as we were growing the industry. Uh, we all were really good about adding more cows uh, in, in a period of uh, good profitability. And I, th I think that's been at play in terms of, of price levels as well. And, and maybe a little different uh, than, than <clears throat> most would think about. So University of Missouri's Thompson Research Center, uh, about a 200 head, primarily Angus-based cow herd up in Spickard, Missouri. I I'm showing some of the individual uh, steer carcass data. So we feed those steers, traditionally have been fed in Western Kansas, we retain ownership. Uh, they've primarily over this period been sold on the uh, USPB uh, grid. And, and so I did some, what's the value of those individual uh, steers relative to a US average, if you will. And for those that can see the, the graph, uh, you know, you get a range of 
of anywhere from about a 0.7 to, to 1.3 on average. Those Thompson steers uh, were, were better than a, a U.S. average. You'll notice some outliers that are low. I, I go generally we'd probably look at uh, steers that got sick somewhere along the way. Something happened to them uh, that, that ended up being low performers. I just remind us that Thompson herd is extremely consistent. If you look at the cows there, uh, they, they look pretty identical. Uh, so not a lot of variability yet. When you look at how those steers fed, there is a lot of variability. Um, so how do we make sure that, that we're driving value to those highest quality uh, steers? It, it's important uh, to the mix. So for those that aren't so familiar with that Thompson farm, I, I sometimes say, you know, that at times they're going to talk about more than half of those steers that would grade prime. Uh, so some pretty good premiums over the period, but it just reminds me of just how variable uh, revenue to steers can be over the period. And using that individual data, I think is interesting to, to try to figure out cattle pricing. All right, so, uh, you know, what can we do about some of this? And I, I wanted to get to the local side. I, I know uh, that Lee talked about it as well. So I have a master student who's currently doing a, a little bit of survey work that is focused at consumers. I go ultimately what's, what do consumers want out of this? Uh, some of the questions being asked of, you know, helps us understand what's the value of Missouri grown label on that? What's the value of a, uh, locally grown label, um, what's a USDA prime label look like in terms of, of value. So I think helping us if we were to look at the local processing option, how do we make sure that we're driving uh, strong demand for those products? We know there are economies of, of size and processing, so a, a smaller plant likely has that as a disadvantage, but can it create a product that has stronger demand and can drive some type of premium. So we're, we're in process of that. Hope to get that done uh, by the end of the year. But I always will remind us that uh, making sure that we hit what consumers want is, is an important piece of that. So um, I, I kind of close by just, again, reminding us that uh, it is a balancing act between economies of scale and, and concentration and, and the potential for non-competitive behavior. I, I don't think we're going to fix this problem uh, in, in a, a matter of months. I, I think how to best price cattle will remain an issue for, and, and I say many years to come, and my bullet point, I might say for decades uh, as, as we look forward. So, again, Blake, I appreciate the chance to visit uh, this morning, and I will turn it back to you. Thank you, Scott. We appreciate your comments. Uh, Kelly Smith, um, put the, this panel together, and as you can see, we're two-thirds of the way through, and he's done a great job. He pointed out to me, Scott, uh, that most of those below-average cattle in Joplin are uh, from Kansas. <laughs> I think that's yeah. right. Kansas, yeah. Oklahoma, yeah. Arkansas, yeah. Yeah. So, so, somewhere, that's for sure. All right, our final panelist this morning is Scott Bennett, and he's the Director of Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Uh, his issue portfolio um, is comprised of livestock and related issues, including gypsum, uh, cell-based plant proteins, gene editing, and mandatory price reporting. And before he uh, started working with AFBF, 
He was legislative director for the former House Chair of the Ag Committee, uh, Bob Goodlatte from uh, Virginia, and uh, obviously was very active during the uh, writing of the 2018 Farm Bill. Scott, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you all so much. Um, I, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. Hopefully, I'm loud and clear. Um, I think it, it's perfect that I was switched to now uh, be third uh, presenting behind Dr. Brown and Dr. Schultz because I think I set it, they set me up perfectly uh, to, to discuss kind of some policies here in Washington that uh, have been a direct result of you know, the consternation and, and these volatile markets that they did such a phenomenal job of outlining for us. Um, you, you know, when we look back uh, at volatility in the cattle markets in particular, uh, you know, first comes to mind was, was Holcomb. Uh, back in August of 2019, uh, we had the Holcomb, uh, the Tyson Holcomb uh, beef plant went down. Uh, that plant alone consisted of five to six percent of the weekly slaughter capacity in the United States. At the time, uh, we thought the world was coming to an end in the, in the, on the beef cattle market side of things. Uh, it was such a, a, a shift and, and, and we saw uh, box beef cutout spike and things of that nature. What we did not know was that a mere six months uh, from then, COVID-19 was going to happen and it was going, COVID-19 volatility uh, was going to make uh, Holcomb, uh, you know, really almost look insignificant. But I think we've learned a lot of lessons from both of those events. And, uh, and certainly uh, not only have farmers and ranchers in the countryside learned from, uh, you know, the volatility and the need for risk management, uh, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures, and we saw a lot of interest enter the political atmosphere as far as what can, Cong what can Congress do, what can my legislators do um, to try and tame this beast uh, when we saw volatility. And, and I, really separate, uh, I, I really separate things kind of into two camps when we look at the volatility, especially over from COVID-19. We had one issue over here that was uh, primarily that of the volatile cattle markets. Um, we saw, we saw uh, you know, prices at the grocery store go up. Folks weren't necessarily receiving that at home. Packing capacity was down. Uh, you know, it, it, there was a lot of focus on the big four, right? The four major packers that uh, that have ownership of 80 to 85 percent of the weekly uh, slaughter capacity, you know, is, is bidding of cattle competitive at all times, especially in a pandemic, uh, you know, folks were really concerned about uh, how, how cattle were priced and the volatility in the markets. So you saw um, interest from legislators on policies, uh, primarily, the, and the main one being uh, 5014 from Senator Grassley of Iowa. So, uh, and, and what that bill would do would require uh, a, each individual packing plant to, uh, to derive at least 50% of their cattle to be killed within 14 days from negotiated cash. Um, for many parts of the country, we see negotiated cash trade anywhere from eight to 15, 20%, and in some places, 
um, such as Iowa, you know, much more closer to 50%. Uh, and, then, and then the second camp of folks, uh, or the second camp of concerns uh, was out of packing capacity, right? You go to the grocery store, there's no meat, or what's there is full retail price. There were no specials. Uh, and yet you go home and there's, you know, your cattle, you're, you're not feeling that uh, coming back to you. There was a lot, again, when you look at the consolidation of the packing industry, there was a resurgence of interest in these very small, small, medium-sized packing plants becoming more robust and playing more uh, of, a, of a role in our supply chain of beef. So when I look at things in those two camps, um, we'll focus primarily that of the packing capacity. Uh, and some of the bills that have come out of Congress uh, that are being discussed right now to really address that issue. American Farm Bureau has been uh, very active in that, uh, in, in the discussions over these bills. And I'll give a quick review of a handful of them and how we perceive them to be beneficial to the industry. Uh, the first one, and honestly, the most recent bill uh, is a bill that comes from Colin Peterson, a chair of the House Ag Committee, and it is called the Ramp Up Act. What it would do would provide $100,000, up to $100,000 grants to small and very small uh, packing facilities, and those are legal terms uh, that dictate the size of a, of a packing plant. Uh, it would provide up to $100,000 grant for those plants to become uh, federally inspected, FSIS inspected. Uh, of course, um, just a, a really quick rundown, you have your custom kill facilities, right, where you can take an animal, it's processed, you get the beef back, uh, and of course, in, on the beef, it's not, it says not for retail sale. Uh, we have 27 states that have state-inspected uh, meat programs. Uh, the, that meat cannot be sold across state lines. It can be sold within the state. And then you have FSIS inspection, which is your federally inspected meat processing. Uh, that, that beef, uh, that meat can be sold across state lines and, uh, and certainly is, is what you see mostly commercially sold. Um, so the Ramp Up Act would allow some of these smaller plants to now become FSIS inspected. And the idea was that at that point in time, especially during COVID, where that packing capacity was down, as Dr. Browns uh, mentioned, you know, even 60% capacity, could, folks were sick in these plants, they had to shut them down, they had to disinfect and clean them. Um, you know, would allowing some of these smaller um, packing facilities coming on board, can that, would that possibly facilitate, uh, you know, more meat on the shelf of, uh, at the grocery store in a time where, uh, when we focus on this just-in-time uh, meat supply, you know, when a large packing facility goes down, uh, that creates a significant impact in that immediate area of what beef potentially could be available at the grocery store. I believe Dr. Schultz mentioned in his presentation that, you know, it would take so many of these small and very small packing plants to make up the difference that you see when one of these large plants goes down in one fell swoop. Uh, I think he's correct there. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we cannot ignore the public interest 
to maybe make or integrate these small and very small um, packing plants, you know, play more of a role in, in our nation's meat supply. Uh, the second bill, uh, one that comes uh, from congressman, a freshman congressman out of South Dakota, Dusty Johnson, uh, it is called the Direct Act. And what it would do is allow direct-to-consumer sale from the farm to consumer of state inspected meat across state lines. So as it stands currently, you cannot sell state inspected meat across state lines. Um, there's a couple of exceptions, uh, mainly CIS, we won't get into those details, but uh, generally speaking, state inspected meat cannot be sold across state lines. And the primary reason for that is the ability to recall. Um, so if, if, if I were to sell uh, Virginia inspected uh, beef uh, into a neighboring state like West Virginia and it needed to be recalled, uh, since it's not federally inspected, you know, the, the Virginia State Department of Health doesn't necessarily have the authority to go across state lines and recall that meat. Um, FSIS inspection, federal inspection, they preempt the state. So, of course, uh, they have the authority to cross state lines and, and recall that meat. There's also some trade implications as well with state inspection and, and the need for um, FSIS inspection for trade purposes as well. But but this direct act, it would allow for that sale um, direct from the producer to the consumer across state lines. Uh, and, and the reason for that, and this bill has FSIS blessing. Uh, they do believe that the way this bill was written, that it would allow for, um, you know, a, a, the ability to recall that meat wouldn't necessarily be like it was a generic product at the grocery store the consumer would know exactly where they purchased that beef from. And again, it would provide an outlet that doesn't exist currently for some of these, not only for the producers to move their product, granted, large, not at any large scale, but, um, and, and then again, if you're a consumer, and especially in the, the throes of COVID, uh, fortunately, we don't experience them anymore. Uh, but in the throes of COVID when you couldn't go to the grocery store and get any protein or at least protein that you wanted, this would have provided an outlet for you um, to, to have that. Of course, these bills are not law and they are being discussed currently um, within uh, the halls of Congress. Um, we are supportive of these two bills. Uh, another bill that we are supportive of uh, is the small uh, Packer overtime relief bill. Uh, on the Senate side, it was introduced by Senator Moran of Kansas. Uh, and what this bill would do would simply uh, reimburse the plants for the overtime pay of the FSIS inspector. So as you can imagine, uh, FSIS inspectors are not employees of the plant, but rather employees of um, the Food Safety Inspection Service. They're required to be in these plants uh, to, uh, in order for the plants to process beef that, or meat that is uh, federally inspected. Now, of course, if you, in your packing plant, uh, decide to run overtime, uh, you have to pay overtime to that FSIS inspector. If you're a big uh, packing plant and you have these economies of scale, 
you know, you're spreading that additional over the, that additional overtime pay over many animals. And of course uh, that affects the profit per profit margin per animal to be minimal. But if you're a small packing facility and, and we're talking about, you know, a plant that might slaughter five to 20 head of cattle a day, you know, you, you cut, you cut your FSIS inspector off at 40 hours a week because that additional cost, which is around $80 an hour, um, you know, say, it, say you get another animal processed by having an FSIS inspector in there another, uh, another hour, you're looking at $80, you know, just tagged on that one carcass. And, and oftentimes that really will affect the bottom line um, of, of profitability there. So uh, this bill, it's very simple, would allow for, um, uh, it, would, it would allow the government to reimburse these small facilities for the overtime pay. So if, you, if these smaller plants that are FSIS inspected, they would now have, not have that at least additional burden to run a Saturday or Sunday shift or maybe a third shift if it's a, a one or two shift plant. Um, so, so that we saw as, as the ability to be um, very flexible. We, we are working these bills. Um, they are very much, uh, you know, a priority of American Farm Bureau uh, right now uh, as we negotiate uh, with the Senate and, and with the House on these next uh, phase bills. Um, I'll, I'll give a brief update from Washington, which uh, unfortunately is, is brief because there's not much, um, not much news to give. But um, as you all may well know, um, the CARES Act uh, was passed. That is what we've called all along phase three. Um, and, and that gave USDA $24 billion. I'm sure many producers out there have seen, uh, you know, the ability to go in and and tap into some of those funds for any of your row crops or your livestock. Uh, soon after uh, the president signed the CARES Act, which was our phase three, uh, we saw the House side uh, move uh, their phase four package, which um, was dubbed the HEROES Act. There were some provisions in the HEROES Act that we really liked on the livestock side, um, one being a, a livestock dealer trust um, it would establish the Livestock Dealers Trust, which uh, was a requirement that was inserted in the 2018 Farm Bill. Uh, we're advocating that uh, the Senate and the package that they have not yet completely uh, put together or materialized, we're encouraging them to include that in the bill so that when or if the president signs a, a consensus bill that will be known as phase four, uh, it will include that provision. Um, but, but as you well know, uh, we're seeing negotiations each and every day, uh, not only between the Senate and the House, the Senate, of course, being uh, under Republican uh, majority and the House being under Democrat majority, but then that of the White House, which uh, they have their own uh, initiatives and priorities that they hope to see in this bill. Of course, uh, the president has to sign the bill, so it's important that his, uh, his needs and wants are uh, somewhat uh, articulated in the debate that happens between the Senate and the House. Uh, I know that this afternoon at five o'clock Eastern, uh, the the all the the main folks uh, Pelosi, Schumer, Mitch McConnell, uh, and and 
Meadows, the chief of staff for President Trump, are going to be meeting this afternoon at five o'clock uh, to try and make some movement uh, on on this phase four package. Uh, the Senate did release uh, an, an initial bill there, and, and Leader McConnell kind of dubs it as a shell bill. But as far as agriculture, it has $20 billion uh, allocated to USDA for COVID-related relief. Um, this would be in addition to uh, the monies that we saw in the CARES Act. And uh, again, next month, we will also see an additional $14 billion in uh, CCC uh, replenishment dollars. So uh, if we pretend that this $20 billion stays in the bill and makes it to the president's desk when he signs it, from start to finish, from well, from phase three and phase four, we will have uh, come to a total of $50 billion in allocated funds for agriculture due to COVID-19 um, related losses. Uh, we are still working closely with all of the policymakers that are in the room uh, negotiating this. We see the $20 billion as um, a, a positive move, a positive measure. We know that there are some aspects of agriculture that see, have seen damages well beyond uh, what was provided in CARES, and so we believe that additional uh, funding is needed. Um, we have been told that, you know, Agriculture is not at the very top or, or is uh, much of a pawn in the chess game between the House and the Senate uh, that we could lose it. Uh, so uh, I think from our perspective now, we're kind of keeping our heads down, let the principals uh, in the House and Senate negotiate this bill, and then it will be sent to, to the White House hopefully very soon. I do not believe we'll see it this week. Uh, I do, uh, of course, Congress takes a recess every August. Uh, the Senate was, they were scheduled to be in this week. The House was scheduled to be, uh, begin their recess. Of course, all parties are still uh, here in Washington, uh, and they are um, debating and, and trying to come to a consensus on this bill. Uh, hopefully, we'll see a vote very soon. I know that the, that the president has threatened some executive actions if he doesn't see anything from Congress uh, in the near term, uh, but certainly we'll be working closely um, with all parties involved and, and we'll update uh, folks as we see uh, additional movements. But with that, uh, I won't take up any further time and I look forward uh, to any questions and certainly thank you, President Hurst, for the opportunity to visit uh, today. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Uh, appreciate your hat collection. We'll make sure that you uh, get a Missouri Farm Bureau hat the next time we're in Washington. All right, we've got some time for questions. Um, there are several ways you can ask a question. If you're watching on Zoom, uh, just type it into the, uh, to the uh, pressing the question answer tab on the bottom of your screen and typing it in. And I'll read the question. If you're calling in by telephone, again, hit star nine on your phone. And uh, then Spencer will unmute you and we'll get to you in uh, rotation. And uh, we'll unmute you so you can ask the question. If you do that, uh, please tell us your uh, name and your county so we know where you're where you're calling from. And if you're following uh, on Facebook, uh, you could send your question in. I, when we experimented yesterday, Facebook's about 30 seconds behind uh, Zoom, so so it may take us a second to get to you, but uh, we will do that. Uh, we do have a question from uh, Geraldine uh, Glow, and uh, she wants to know 
Uh, now the grocery store supply, and I'll ask, I'll address this to any of the three of you. Uh, now that grocery store supply is once again closer to normal, a lot of the small processes are seeing uh, cancellations. Uh, this may become an issue uh, that need to be addressed in the future. Any comments about what's happening with small processors? Well, I, so I haven't heard uh, any cancellations. You know, I think we, uh, on the other side of that, you know, I was hearing of stories of small processors being booked out into 2021 and not just the first few months of 2021 and you're realizing it's into, you know, summer of 2021. Um, you know, I think it, it's really, I, I think it's important to understand, you know, the the ability of those packers matched up with, with the needs of, of consumers, right? And so I think, you know, and um, I 100% I agree with Scott that, you know, there is a role for each size packer um, out, out there, but, but understand they have a lot of limitations. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, understanding was that a, a realistic situation to see their bookings out to 2021, I think that could have caused really some logistical challenges. A lot of times those smaller packers or the volume there in Iowa I could speak to a lot of times hogs uh, because they don't need the, the necessary time hanging that, that cattle do. Um, and really that could clog up that supply chain and, and impact uh, consumers that did have some of their, their booking needs. So, you know, I fully expect those packers, even though we've seen cancellations, to still be fully employed um, just because I think a lot of consumers got used to um, and seen the value in freezer beef or freezer pork or, or whatever it is. And so, you know, I, I think it really opened our eyes to, to many of those, many of the ways that we can buy locally and, and, and really, and that should increase that demand. All right, thank you. Any other comments from the panel, Scott or Scott? One or two? I'll, I'll be short just to remind us that I hope those smaller processors think hard about how to generate long-term demand. Uh, we're going to quickly figure out which consumers were, were purely in this for price and, and how quickly they switch back to traditional ways. And, and so I, I always view the marketing side as really important. I just hope we keep our local processors uh, from getting themselves uh, financially at risk as maybe they no longer process deer because they're feel like they're so busy in some of these other uh, commodities, we sure want them long-term and, and hitting that demand side and marketing to consumers about things beyond price, I think is important. All right. Thank you, Scott. Uh, I had a question. I'm going to address this to Scott Bennett first, and obviously the two doctors can pitch in. Um, the uh, NCBA had their national meeting last week. They came out with some, uh, some policy uh, proposals. Um, or, or, or what policy proposals came out of that discussion? And I'll go to Scott Bennett first. Thank you. So, um, yes, you're, you're correct. NCBA held their uh, summer policy conference last week. Um, I know they uh, addressed the um, minimum negotiated trade issue uh, at length. Um, I have uh, not discussed it, this at any great length with anyone at NCBA quite yet. But what I will mention is uh, at NCBA, they did task themselves with putting together a working group uh, to look at things, uh, you know, concerns within uh, these cattle markets. Uh, however, at American Farm Bureau, 
we've had a, a cattle market working group uh, established for um, several months now. And, and this working group has met with um, employees of uh, FSIS to talk about the small and very small packing uh, concerns. We visited with House and Senate Ag Committee staff, many economists from across the country, um, and some other trade associations uh, inside, inside Washington that may have a, a, a view of sometimes and oftentimes different than ours. We want to hear all sides. So we are analyzing uh, this volatility internally at American Farm Bureau and hope that that will allow us to be more robust in policy development moving forward. Any comments about the NCBA from Dr. Schultz or Brown? All right, good enough. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll open this up, I think, to all three of you. Uh, the Grassley Bill obviously is a big topic of conversation. So uh, what concerns, if any, uh, do you have both from AFBF's perspective and then perhaps from an, uh, a couple of economists' perspectives about the Grassley Bill? Don't all jump at once. Dr. Schultz, would you like to respond first and then we'll go, go from there? Sure, I, so I, you know, I think there, there's a few key points here to, to realize that you know, the, the structure of, of the industry, there's not a, a silver bullet here. And Scott Brown hit, hit on it that you know, I think the, the discussion is, is important to really focus in on, on price discovery um, and not necessarily you know, what's going to lead to higher prices. And I think we really need to separate those two. Uh, there's a lot of ways uh, to increase price discovery as well. You know, one is uh, looking at, um, and I was involved with, with a study that looks at possible realignment. So there's a lot of states in particular, Colorado and at times uh, Texas, that we're not receiving the negotiated uh, prices because they're not meeting confidentiality. Um, and a lot of times that confidentiality relates to the number of packing plants that are reporting, not necessarily the number of producers that are negotiating. Um, and so if we were to revisit the, the alignment of those reporting, so putting states together, including additional states, that may ease some of those confidentiality restrictions and allow more reporting of that. Now, you know, you could argue that that's potentially a Band-Aid approach uh, because we've been on a downward trend of, of reduction in, in negotiated trade. But that possibly could be paired with more voluntary approaches to trade that could increase that, that number of, of negotiated. I mean, realizing that here, here in the North, I mean, for the year in, in 2020, we've been trading 60% negotiated here in Iowa. Um, and, and we're some of, we're the highest really in the country of reporting. That's not necessarily the case in a lot of the other five market uh, reporting areas. So any policy um, is not going to be inclusive of all you know individual states or even producers' needs necessarily. Dr. Brown, I'll just jump in and again uh, agree with Lee, uh, but but provide maybe a little different. I, so if you think about a fifteen. 5014 becoming law, and, and all of a sudden I'm sitting there as a packer and I'm not going to meet the 50. How do I get there? You know, what, what's my strategy? So I, I want to learn more about that process. I sometimes worry one, one way to do it is to go to those that are, 
have cattle priced some other way than negotiated and say, sorry, I'm not taking your cattle this week because I got to get the 50% negotiated. Um, if, if you think about some of our higher quality cattle, that they're often going to be grid based or formula based, that does that somehow create a disadvantage for some of our cattle producers relative to the added price discovery benefits of more negotiated. So it, it's always, it's not a simple solution here, I guess, is my, my point. And sometimes we're going to get potentially effects happening uh, that, that we didn't anticipate. So I think we want to march carefully as we think about uh, legislating a solution uh, to, to this uh, cattle pricing issue. Sorry, you, you can kind of tell that Senator Grassley's from Iowa and not from Missouri. All right, Scott Bennett, what would you like to say? Yeah, I'll touch. I'll I'll touch really briefly, and I and I think Dr. Schultz and Dr. Brown, uh, they have doctor in front of their name. So the economic merits of what this would do, I, I defer to them. But from a policy perspective, and and I will be upfront, American Farm Bureau does not support uh, a minimum negotiated trade uh, or a mandatory minimum negotiated trade, simply because uh, in our policy book we've uh, established uh, that that would take away from uh, producers' ability to enter into AMAs, uh, alternative marketing arrangements, and could potentially take away their ability to add value to their cattle. Um, if anyone has any questions about that from an American Farm Bureau standpoint, uh, an economist on our team and myself put together a three-page paper that briefly uh, explains uh, not only the economics of it, but the policy. But really briefly, I'll mention there's a reason that the 5014 discussion is ripe right now. Obviously, the volatility from COVID-19, but we are 50 some odd days now away from the end of the fiscal year, September 30th, 2020. And that is when the five-year mandatory price reporting reauthorization will expire. So we are now needing to reauthorize mandatory price reporting uh, after having just experienced one of the most or the most volatile uh, cattle market, uh, you know, in the history of my lifetime. Uh, and, and not only that, I'll throw this out there as food for thought. Uh, USDA had done their investigation of, of the marketplace and they have, they have published that. Uh, you can read through uh, the analysis of what happened in the markets, but I think most importantly is at the end of that document, USDA actually outlines some what they call other considerations and they are hints at potential policy that, uh, you know, industry should take a look at to maybe address and, and um, not have the magnitude of volatility that we've seen in the past. But uh, that's, what I'll, uh, that's what I'll say. But with mandatory price reporting encroaching us each and every day, it just only uh, makes this issue that much more important. All right. Thank you. We've got a question from... Uh, Stan Cote, a producer in southern Missouri. Uh, the frustration of most producers and the desire to see something done with the Packers is that profits made by the Packers are not being passed on to the cattle feeders and then turn the feeder calf producer. Is there anything that can be done uh, to, better, to address this? Scott, I'm going to let you go. Scott Brown, I'm going to let you go first ask you to go first. I knew when you said Scott, I could defer to Scott Bennett, but so it's a good question, number one, and, and one that we should be thinking about. I, I 
I'm not sure that there's, again, an easy answer to that question. I, I sometimes, however, will say I'm not sure what we saw as, as large profits to, to beef packers, um, maybe not quite as big as, as some of the ways we've looked at them. Um, for, for me, this has a lot more to do with who's bearing the risk under these kind of COVID-19 outcomes that we have. And, and I sometimes worry that that risk has gotten passed all the way to producers, and in the case of cattle, cow-calf producers. And, and I worry that we need to come up with a strategy to manage that risk better across all segments and not make that all get passed back ultimately to farmers. How you do that, um, I, I wish I had a good answer to, to Stan's question. I don't. Um, I, I always worry a, a legislative solution has unintended consequences at times that, that make that a difficult road as well. Dr. Schultz? You know, a few comments, I, I think, um, and, and we've seen other industries do this, right? And so I, but being here in Iowa, it's, it, it's hogs, right? And so there, there's more vertical integration. So there, yes, you are sharing more of the risk, but also possibly more of the profit as we've seen producers get into strategic alliances or even ownership of packing plants. Now there's consequences of that for the cattle industry if, if that is something moved to. Also, if we look at the hog industry, many of those formulas include a share of the, the pork cutout, right? And that, that formula changes over time and how much of the cutout and how much is cutout versus a negotiated price. But there you are sharing much more of the pork price some of in some of the the pricing uh, for those animals, you can really point to this last May as an example. We've seen rather strong prices for hogs in May compared to earlier in April and, and later in June, and that was a lot pointed towards the strong cutout price. Now, an implication for there for the cattle industry, we don't see a pricing off of the box beef price, and, and one of the reasons is because of the live cattle contract. It isn't a, it doesn't, it isn't a cash settled contract uh, like we do see with hogs in, in the lean contract. So there's implications for changing that, which has consequences for risk management uh, when we talk about convergence of that live cattle contract. So it's not a simple answer here. Um, there's a lot of factors and if you move one thing, you're gonna move another thing. And so there, you know, again, I, I think we need to look at this lens also from a much broader view. So if we're just looking at 2020, the share of profits, as, as Scott Brown showed in, in retail prices and wholesale prices compared to farm level prices has diverged. But the real key question is, does that persist? Or do we return to more long-term historical relationships where we're both sharing risk and reward or profits in that case. Scott Bennett, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, this is the million dollar question that at least from a policy perspective, we've been trying to answer since COVID-19 started. Um, you know, that being said, and I think Dr. Schultz and Dr. Brown hit it right on the, on the head. You know, you pull one lever and the other one goes up. That's the unintended consequences. So I think from a policy perspective, we're trying to thread the needle and do as much as we can without creating these unintended consequences that, as Dr. Schultz uh, mentioned, may benefit us now, but years down the road could really impede our ability to 
operate in a free market and, and add that additional value to the cattle that we, we certainly worked so hard to raise. Well, it's noon. Uh, that's the end of our session. I'd like to thank all three panelists, uh, a tremendous job of covering our recent past and uh, perhaps looking a little bit into the future as best we can. Uh, again, uh, thank you for joining us. Those of you on Zoom, Facebook, or who have called in, and we'll see you again at 1 p.m. Uh, and again, you'll just have to dial in for the next session, and uh, we will learn a little bit about carbon trading. So Scott Bennett, you may want to turn in, you'll probably learn something. So again, I want to thank uh, Dr. Schultz, Dr. Brown, and Scott Bennett for their time and their wisdom and their experience, and thank all of you for listening. Goodbye for now. <laughs>